I ask you to look with me in Genesis chapter 32 this morning. It will be our text. Genesis chapter 32. We're really going to be looking at uh, verse 24 in particular to touch us this morning. Genesis chapter 32. I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've sent to all to t- I've sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messenger returned, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, "We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him." Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, "If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape." And Jacob said, "O God of my father." Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two counts. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother with the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he stayed there that night, and from that what he had, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When he saw my brother meet you, ask, and ask you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are all these ahead of you? Then you will say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, saying, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find them. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the river, the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And pray that through your word, you might this day speak to us. 
Oh God, I, I pray that You would save me from in any way trifling with Your Word. Help me, God, to speak the truth and only the truth. And may that truth do Your promise that it would set the captive free. That it would lead us into all righteousness. That it would bring us to Christ. And Lord, I pray for Your personal dealing with me, everyone that is watching remotely and with us in the reading and the sharing of Your Gospel. For every man and woman, child that is in this house this day, God, I ask You to personally deal with these people as You dealt with this man, Jacob. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. You can be seated. As we look at this, we understand that this is one of the greatest stories that can be found, of course, in the Bible. You can't read this chapter without seeing the position that Jacob takes, the way he deals with matters of life. It doesn't take a lot of imagination as you watch Jacob and you know the story of Jacob as he moves back and forth, making his plans, making his arrangements, and getting people to do certain things. And we find, though, in, in chapter 32 that he comes to a place where that he is alone. He is alone. He's by himself. But let's come up to speed and look at his life for just a second for, and look at all the incidents that led to this particular moment. Jacob and Esau, of course, were the brothers. They were twins. They were the two sons of Isaac. Esau was the firstborn, and they were two very different kind of individuals. And Jacob came out trying to be a supplanter with a scheme out of his mother's womb. We call him, or I do, the old hill grabber. He had a hold of Esau's hill. He was wanting something just as he came out of the womb. They were twins. Two different kinds of men. Now, Jacob was, of course, the favorite of his mother. We know the story from our Sunday school teachings. And we remember how she came up with a plan and she wanted, because she wanted to obtain the blessing, the inheritance that actually belonged to Esau, the firstborn. She wanted it to be given un, uh, from Isaac to Jacob. And we remember how Jacob disguised himself according to her instruction and he as his brother, and he goes in and he presents himself before Jacob. Jacob's old and he's blind, and so he does everything by, he knows people by feeling. And as Jacob comes before him, he touches his arms, and we remember that he had put some kind of hairy stuff on his arms, and when when Isaac uh, touched him, he said, well, it's the voice of Jacob, but it is the arms and, and the body of old hairy Esau. And so Jacob then by scheming and his mother scheming with him obtained the blessings that should have been Esau. Esau became very angry to the point of wanting to kill Jacob. And Jacob's mother advises him, he need, you need to leave town. And so he does. And he goes to stay in a country with his uncle Laban, who is his mother's uh, uh, brother, of course. And we remember, and uh, you remember, all of you here, how that he prospered in that country. How that he he had he was given by working seven years for uh, fourteen years totally two wives, two daughters from Laban, and he prospered, even though some of the things he did. 
we might could condemn, but we won't get into that right now. And then the time comes for Jacob to come home. He feels that he needs to leave uh, Laban and go back to his own country. And that's the point that chapter 32 brings us to at its beginning. Jacob has left. He's going now with his wives and his possessions, and he's got a lot of them, as we noticed as we read. And he he's about to enter his homeland, but he knows something. He knows that Esau is there. Jacob remembers what he has done, and so he feels uh, that Esau's probably angry, especially when he gets the message. He's full of fear. He's concerned about all of his possessions. He's concerned about his wife and his children. And he doesn't know what it is that he should do. And so, this great schemer comes up with a plan. He tries a plan. We just read it. You remember the scheme that, that he, that he, that, that he come, that he works out. And it's pretty clever. He sent one and then another and then another and then another. And each one had a message for his brother Esau. And we saw how, for safety's sake, he divided his possessions and the people with him into different bands and he sent them across the river. He is then left for a little while with his wife and his children. And then after he's taken them forward, they cross the river, Jabbok, and he returns to the river where we find him in verse 24 again. It says, and Jacob was left Alone. He's by himself. And then this wonderful thing that we're going to read about in just a minute begins to happen to him. And I want to talk about that today. Here's Jacob wondering how in the world he's going to meet his brother the next day. He knows that Esau is coming in his direction. And he doesn't know his attitude toward him. And he also, toward himself. And he also knows that Esau has with him 400 or men. Doesn't sound good. He can see his goods. He can just see it in his mind. His goods being taken from him. His wives and his children killed. And there's a sense of alarm, of distress in this man right now. We heard that in his prayer that we went through. There we see him. Everything else has crossed over the river. And here he is by himself alone. Walking back and forth. Restless pacing, unable to sleep, wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen? And then this amazing thing begins to happen, which leads to the last verse that's recorded in this chapter. And in verse 24, look there with me. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go, unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, "For the I have seen God face to face. I have seen God, I repeat it, face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed. Peniel, limping because of his hip. 
Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. An amazing thing was going on. This, my friends, is a turning point in the life story of the man that is now called Israel. It was the point, I believe, in which Jacob finally, really and truly becomes a man of God. He had known about God before. He was part of a covenant family. He was doing the things that he was supposed to do where the covenant was concerned. But until this time, Jacob was a man who had been, it seems to me, playing with religion. Oh, yeah, he believed in God. And when in trouble, he always prayed to God. But until this point, it was something external with him. It was something okay is all right when it suited him. You remember when he goes back and when he left his home for the first time in Genesis 28, how he made a bargain with God? Let's kind of like, let's make a deal, God. God had said something to him and he says, okay, God, in so many words, you bless me, you do this and I'll do this. You bless me and I'll do this. And then if you do all this, then you'll be my God. Well, no, I've got news for you. He's God and He's His God even then. As we're going to see. And then He says, you do this, I'll do this, you'll be my God, and then I'll start giving you a tenth. But from this point that we've just read, from this point on in the life of this man, everything is different. This becomes the central turning point. A central turning point in this man's life. And from this moment on, From this moment on, religion becomes real. He becomes a true man of God. He's never the same. He's never ever again. He's even got a different name now. He doesn't walk the same. He walks with a limp. He becomes a new man. After this experience which happened the night before he met his brother. And this brings us face to face with the turning point in the life of one of the most important men in the Old Testament. And we're looking at it because it gives us something. Can you see it? It gives us a perfect picture of the essence of a true experience of religion, a true experience of God, which is known as conversion. He's converted. It's known as conversion. And in one sense, it shows us what the Christian gospel is and what it does in an individual. We're living in times when it seems to me that the first first thing that we have to do is to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. A lot of people at this very hour are very concerned about what's outside the door. Everybody is concerned about the world, about our nation as a people right outside the church. And I don't want to be critical, but it seems to me that we must start with ourselves. It takes a people, another people, and another people, and another people, individuals, which we're going to see, to make a nation or church. And so, we need to examine ourselves. There were letters that were written to the church, for instance. 
in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, and they were being persecuted. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not, listen to me, who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he says again, not Peter, but Paul this time in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Again, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. before we take the Lord's table, so that we don't take the bread, the blood, and the body broken of Christ in an unworthy manner, if we're told to let a person, here's the word again, examine himself then, and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, Paul is summing up something that he's been saying. He's talking about what Israel did in the wilderness, things that they shouldn't have done, and what happened to them as a result, even though they were the people of God. And they were given as an example. And he says, now these things happened to them as an example, written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We're not just talking about falling temporarily. We're dealing, my friends, with eternity here. To believe in God. And that's what Jacob did before he became... To believe in God is not enough. And, and this story shows us this. The devils believe in God. To pray to God when we need Him. That's not enough. To have an interest in religion. In the theologies, in the debates, in the philosophies. It is not sufficient, my friends. The vital question is this for you as an individual this morning. Are we like Jacob? Before or after the vision. That is the question. The call that comes to us as individuals in the church comes to us and we're told to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves, our position, what we believe. Have we had, and I'm using the word, I'm going to use it over and over. Have we had this vital experience which Jacob had on this occasion? Do we know something of this change which makes a man forever different because of this meeting between himself and God? Here is one classical, biblical account of a vital experience with God. And over and over and over, the same teaching is recorded in the Bible. You find it in the form of direct statements and teaching, and you see it in the lives of men illustrated over and over for you. It's happening. And I am so concerned for this and burdened for this because I feel the church inside is full of people who've never had this experience. Who don't know what I'm talking about. Who don't mind being in the crowd. 
but never are alone in the presence of God. Alone. This is a very big subject, and no one can in one sermon hope to exhaust it. I know I can't. But since I'm getting to preach again on the 23rd, I'm doing a two-parter. I just want today to look at Jacob's experience in a very general way, and then, God willing, the next time I preach, which is the 23rd, we'll go into some more detail. But as we look at this in general, as we look at this, there are certain very simple questions that we have to ask looking at it. The great underlying central question is this. Have I had the true Christian experience? I'm not an experientialist. We'll get there. Time willing. God willing. Do I conform to the New Testament picture and pattern of such a person who has had the true Christian experience? Some people might say, okay, Cecil Paul, it's okay to ask, but what is, what is it that characterizes? What characterizes a true Christian? How can I test myself? How can I know if my religion is something real or not? How am I to know if I'm in the position of Jacob before or after? Penuel. I would like to try for just a few minutes to show you some of the characteristics of this vital experience. You understand the word vital. I've got vital organs, right? That, that mean life. And if they're not there, it's death. Conversion is always and intensely personal. It is an intense personal experience. And Jacob was left alone. Nobody else around. This experience will first and always isolate us. It puts us apart. It sets us on our own. It makes us realize the fact that we are an individual. And thus as an individual, as an individual, I have individual responsibilities. I think that this is one of the most difficult things in our life today because it seems like that everything in life working together to make us forget the fact that we are individuals, make us forget our separate identity. We think of the United States and we think Kirk prayed for the people. Right, and he should pray for the people. But it starts, as I said, with the individual it starts with you and me. It starts with us. It's become easy for a man to become lost in his work, in his profession, in his occupation, in his hobbies, in his family, or in the class structure that he's in, or right now in his race, whether he's white or whether he's black or whatever. Get lost in that. The group. The bunch of folks. 
Our attention is turned to the group. And the world as a whole is easy to become lost. It becomes easy for a lot of people to become lost even in the church. These great big churches, they go there just safe and sound. They don't like for anybody to get up close to ask them questions, to know them. It becomes easy for a man to become lost there. The world is thinking increasingly in terms of the millions, of the crowd. And the church is following the lead. We read about mega churches, millions of people, thousands of people. And when we read about one person or two people or a hundred people, that doesn't really make that much. How many were hurt? Oh, one or two. Oh, we're not doing that. It's not even worth listening to. And then we have these mega churches. Joel Osteen is known. He makes so many headlines, my friends, because there are so many people. There's a lot of people. If there's a lot, a lot of people think we have a successful church. And the world thinks in these terms. The individual is at a discount. Everything is being organized in terms of the group. Everything becomes bigger and bigger. You see it in business. The small man is swallowed up in the chain stores. <laughs> Where's the mom and pop thing? The stores that well, we knew the people. And the people knew us. And we knew the people that were in there shopping. You see it in politics. You see it in the industry. Where the workman is lost in the group. In the union. The individual relationship between the employer and the employee. It's gone. More is being handled by machinery. When's the last time? I'd like to talk to somebody if I could, please. Well, we got this menu. Where is he? 20 minutes later, we're still waiting to talk to an individual because I, as an individual, would like to talk to another individual, a person. We have this machinery, the whole of life. Every department is being thought of in terms of the mass rather than of the individual. Why machines? Well, they produce more. <laughs> okay, more, 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 more. More is not always better, friends. The whole of life in every department is being thought of in terms of more rather than of the individual. No relationship between, hey, are you a member of Sam's Club? Show you a little card, right? Right. I'm a member of Sam's Club. You feel like you're a part of Sam's Club? How can you be a part of Sam's Club? I go in there, I don't know a single soul in there, unless I happen to bump into one of you. Sam don't know anything about me other than I pay him X amount of dollars. He doesn't know anything about me. Doesn't care to know anything about me. Because that's the way the system is working. So, when you begin to think of international relationships and bombs and things like that, it becomes even more alarming, doesn't it? Because they're not thinking about Kirk fearing. The individual has been made to feel that he matters very little. Where is the individual? He doesn't seem to count at all. Everything is in terms of numbers. Until you get to the Bible. 
John chapter 3. You want to look there with me? John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus face to face. The man is alone with Jesus. By himself with Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one (laughs) is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Starts with you, Nicodemus. And then he goes on to verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel at that. Now, I notice the word, I know the word you is in the plural there. And he's saying, listen, Nicodemus, as a teacher in Israel, you need to tell Israel that they need to be born again. But I am talking directly to you. You must be born again. You must be. He didn't say, he didn't say, y'all must be born again. Great massive thing. It was you. And there's nothing so harmful to this vital experience that I'm talking about as that outlook. Because it's hostile to the true Christian experience. We're going to pass it on to somebody else. The first step in the direction of this experience is always that we come to a realization of our own individuality. Jacob is alone. And then, being alone, a man... God begins to wrestle with him. Now, God has a lot of different ways of bringing us to this point. The one that we're looking at in our text is pretty dramatic. But, Jacob had to be literally separated from his wives and children. He had to be separated, especially from his goods and his possessions that he'd worked so hard to get. Jacob's danger was to identify himself with those things. You okay, Jacob? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Just look. He sent him in. Look here at Esau, all this stuff. He sent it in front of him. His testimony. I've retired. Now I'm coming home. I've got several million dollars in the bank. i got all this stuff. I'm going to send it in front of you. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Look at my prosperity. Look at my family. All my kids. Remember the rich young ruler? We're so anxious to point our finger at him. Why? He wouldn't give it all up for Jesus. He went on his way, didn't he? Think of him. That's why it's so hard, Jesus said, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we need to remember, my friends, that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink and stuff, but it is, according to Paul, the Holy Spirit, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. At any rate, God separates him. And he does this in a lot of ways. It may be by means of illness. A man may be living his life with his family, surrounded by his children, interested in his profession, living for all these things, living for all this stuff. And he never stops to ask, why am I? Who am I? What's going to happen after this life is over? He's lost. He's lost in these concerns and then suddenly he gets sick and God separates him. 
separates him from his business, from his profession, from his interests, from his hobbies, falls off the porch and breaks his neck. Sick bed has been the means of bringing many a person to this experience. God will sometimes come into our lives. He'll give us a disappointment. He'll take our money. He'll bring our a crash to our business. We might be brought to this a point of disappointment in a friendship, or even more to a point of disappointment in this tender realm of human affections for a husband or for a wife or for a child or a father or a mother might be brought to that point. My friends, you read the lives of the saints and you will find that it is in such ways as this that I'm describing to you that God has begun to speak to different people. When did God, when did Job finally hear what God was saying? Read it. Job chapter 42, 1 through 6 and 10 through 11. I thought I knew God. I thought I heard God, but now it's different. He set him apart from all the stuff and all everybody, all his friends, his wife, and his family. The same thing happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. I want you to look there with me right quick. Daniel chapter 4. And you can read the account of uh, Job. Read it. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has been... Braggadocious, and he didn't know that he was an instrument in God's hands. And he says in verse 28, All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of the twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Listen, he's been separated. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know something. I'm going to separate you from it all until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And immediately, this began to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And then, he begins to come to his senses like the prodigal. And at the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason, verse 34, returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at this time, he's testifying. My reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. But now, there's something different in what he says. 
than what he begins saying in verse 28 and 29. He has a different word to say now. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are right and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. He isolates from the things in which they people lose themselves. And there is an isolation. And in that isolation, they people stop and realize that they're individuals and they have to face certain questions for themselves. Mom and Daddy can't face it for you. And after all, is a whole business of preaching. The first business of preaching, I think, is to bring each one to a realization that we are individuals. I'm talking to you and 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 you that aren't listening. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you and you and you and you and you and you and me. Personal, one-on-one. That's what this pulpit's about. The whole business. That's why I talk in the pulpit about social conditions, economics and political conditions is in a sense doing violence to the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is always intensely personal. In the first instance, it says to you, you are an individual, you stand alone. Who do you say, who do you say, do you say that He is? Who do you say, Jesus says, to the individual that I am? Though we're in the world with its millions, we stand out one by one. We're born alone. My friend, you will die alone. By by yourself, even though there may be a lot of people around you. That is an intensely personal thing that you cannot get away from. Death is something intensely individual. The Gospel reminds us that we are individuals in the sight of God and that God will and does make individual demands of us. God does. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You will stand before, as an individual, the judgment seat of Christ and you won't be able to hide behind your wife Behind your daddy, behind your mother, you will stand before God as an individual. At the bar of God's judgment, we shall not be seen in crowds, but every man will be judged alone. Wow. The Bible tells us that there's a record of every single person, every work you or I have done. It's set down, even every idle word. Everything we do and say is known to God, and each man is individually, individually responsible. And Jacob was left alone. Have you looked at yourself in isolation? 
Have you realized that you're an individual in this world and in this life before God? If you haven't, I this day beseech you to get away from the crowd, from the mob, and isolate yourself. Hear the word of the gospel today. Come and stand alone and recognize that you have an individual responsibility. And the first mark of the gospel is always that it is intensely personal. It makes a man realize that he is responsible for his life in this world. And nobody else is responsible for it. It brings home to him the fact that he is here today, that he's gone tomorrow, that he must stand in the judgment for himself. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's another mark of this vital experience I'd like to talk to you about. Conversion is an experience which always brings us into a personal relationship with God. This is the great thing emphasized in our story of Jacob. We must not, listen to me, we must not think of Christianity simply as a matter of morals and of actions. We must not think of Christianity as a matter of just ideas or principles. Christianity, my friends, is not a point of view. It is not just an attitude towards peace, war, education, or politics. It is not primarily a message about what can be done for society. No, no, no. It is, in the first instance, a man coming to a personal encounter with God. Now Jacob, before Penuel, Peniel had been in this position, other position. Jacob, like so many of us, had always thought of God as a kind of agency that would give him blessings as he needed a blessing or as some great power to, and he could turn to when he needed strength or needed power, needed to get married or get somebody buried. And after doing so, what did he do? He went and he forgot all about God. And this, my friends, was all changed forever on that night when he met God face to face. And the essence of every conversion experience is this same personal encounter with God. I think for too long the church has been, and is caught up with us, interested in a social gospel in which religion is a matter of ethics, something to uplift us and raise a man and up and make him a voice in the town square. But it is not a matter of mere, it's not abstract theology. We must see that a man's personal relationship to God is the very, very essence of this matter. Because man meets God. He meets God and he has to do something about it. It is a critical encounter. God is not the big it in the sky. He is the great eternal I am that I am. And we don't live in the realm of ideals even though we have some. This is a matter of a personal meeting with God. Life, the very life you live, my friends, is an encounter between what? People. Persons. We read the Trinity. There are what in the Godhead? Three, thank you, persons, persons, persons. God is no longer, when this happens to us, just some kind of 
abstract quantity in our philosophies. God is no longer just a concept that we have to set forth. We've got to set it forth. We've got to say there God is somewhere. He got to be, we've got to acknowledge that to make our scheme complete. But He's an idea that is far away from us, removed, remote. And God is not an agency who sometimes blesses us. No. God is a person. God is real. God is someone to whom we speak. God is someone that we hear speaking to us. God is someone with whom we have business between Him and ourselves. There is a living communication. Or there should be. And there will be. Before Peniel, Jacob believed in that remote, impersonal God. But there he met Him. Jacob was left alone and God came to him, talked to him, struggled with him, and Jacob was aware of the presence of God. And so we ask you this morning, is God real to you? Is He personal to you? Is God a living God to you? This is always the second mark of this experience. It brings us into a direct and immediate personal relationship with God. Let me ask you something, very simply and very bluntly. When you get on your knees in prayer, if in fact you do, do you know that God is there? What is prayer to you? Is it just the muttering of a few pious phrases? Right phrases even? Hopes? Do you talk about yourself and about a few other people and certain possibilities? Or have you desired... And have you known and felt the presence of God? Have you known that He is there, a living, real, and holy person? Have you met God? God in Christ is a real, living person to those who have passed through this experience. And the church houses are full of people who have not. they rather talk about the crowd The next thing that must follow of necessity from what I have already said is simply this. A man who has this experience always recognizes that this is the most important thing of all his life. As the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul longeth after thee. When shall I come? When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I stand before Him? When shall I see Him? When shall I behold the glory? This thought is here on the very surface of Jacob's story. Here he is. He's full of worry. He's anxious, wondering what's going to happen. He's thinking about Esau, 400 men, the danger to his goods and his possessions. But as this experience begins, guess what? Guess what? (laughs) Jacob forgot all about Esau and his 400 men. When he began to wrestle with God, when this man appears and begins to, they begin to wrestle with each other, he forgot about Esau, he forgot about his 400 men, he forgot about his cattle, his sheep, his oxen, his wealth, he even forgot about his wives and his children. It was him and God. Face to face. That's what it says. Why call it Peniel? 
But as this experience begins, Jacob forgets. He forgot. He forgot everything except this person. This possibility is held out to him. Isn't this something, my friends, that is always true of those who pass through this essential Christian experience? Jacob struggled for the blessing. He pleaded for it. Notice verse 26 in chapter 32 with me again. 26 in chapter 32. And then he said, after the wrestle, let me go for the day's broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go. <laughs> oh my. I will not let you go. I won't let go. Unless you bless me. I will not let you go. The morning's coming. Dawn is there. Esau is coming. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I will not let you go. This is the thing of all things. If I lose everything, I have to have this. This is always the language of the vital Christian experience. A man who is truly a Christian is a man who realizes that God is the most important person in all his life. God. You ask me, what is a Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I'll say this. To begin, he is a man who has come to realize that he has a soul. And that he's lost that soul in a spiritual sense. He's dead. He realizes that he stands guilty before God. He realizes that there's a destiny where his soul is concerned. And that destiny now matters. He was before interested completely in other things. But now he knows they will all disappear. But his soul will go on. He knows it. He sees judgment coming. And thus he sees that he needs salvation. He needs forgiveness. He needs a new life. He needs to be reconciled to God. And the question arises from his heart and from his heart. He he cries out when God begins to stir him that away. Brings him to life. Is there anyone can help? And the word is, yes, there is. There is. And he turns to Christ and says, I will not let you go. I'll not let you go. No, 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 never. Oh, how I need this blessing from you. Bless me. I'll not let go. For this he pleads. For this he cries. And it's now the supreme interest in his life. And let me ask you something. Let me ask you. Let me get intensely personal with you. Is this the biggest thing in your life? If I ask you today, what is the one thing to which you would hold if everything else had to go? Oh, that never happened. Oh, you don't know that. If everything else had to go, what is the one thing to which you would hold? What would you say? Think about it. Would you say, I'll hold on to Christ at the expense of everything else? 
That, my friends, is the mark of a Christian. He sees that it's Christ dying on the cross that alone can give him forgiveness for sins. He sees in Christ alone that He's given a new life. He's given a new nature and a new standing before God. He sees that it is Christ who's conquered death, hell, and the grave and that He's given an eternal and glorious inheritance from Christ. He sees all that in Christ and He says, though I lose everything as long as I have Him, all is well. I have learned in whatsoever state that I find myself therein, says Paul in Philippians 4, therein to be content, whether I've got a lot or whether I don't have anything, whether I'm suffering stripes or I'm well. As long, as long as I have Him, everything else can go. There's been men that have had to face that, friends. Is Christ supreme in your life? Do we know that this is the most vital thing? That we would gladly sacrifice everything else for the sake of it? Do we understand Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39? For sake of time, I'll not turn there. He who loves father, mother, sister, brother, anything else more than me, guess what? Is not worthy of me. And he who will not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Follow me, rich young ruler. Oh no, I got this stuff. And this is what Jacob came to feel. It's always been the feeling of every true Christian. Men can trouble me. They can distress me. They can persecute me. But the Christian says, if Christ is with me, all is well. In the flame, in the fire, in the lion's den. Being strangled. William Tyndall. You know why he killed him? Because he translated the Bible into English. They hunted him down. Choked him to death. Strangled him. And then burned him. All was well. And his final words were, May God open the King of England's eyes. <sighs> the last thing. <clears throat> this is an experience with always, and I know I'm going long, I'll finish here in just about five or ten minutes. This is an experience which always leads to permanent change. I want to emphasize to you the word permanent because the true experience of God in Christ is not a mere emotional experience of the moment. It's not falling around on the floor and laughing and giggling and kicking and jerking. People may have an emotional experience, profess conversion, and yet not have a true experience at all of God in Christ. Remember, there's good ground, the parable of the good, the seed, and the good ground, and the bad ground. There are such things as psychological conversions. And I want to tell you that I'm not here promoting emotion. So there's nothing wrong with emotion. We're self-controlled by God's grace. 
I'm not promoting that. I say, though, that the mark of the genuine experience is a person's perseverance. Jacob, after Peniel, was never the same man again. He was lame. We read it. He had a mark upon him. His name had been changed. You read his story from that point onward and you will see it. The old Jacob was no more. When Esau tried to get him to go with him and his 400 men and ride off, he said, no, no. The man who was always in the front, always about Jacob, says, no, I'm going to... Well, how does he put it? In chapter 33, he says, no, no, no. You're going ahead. I'm in verse 14 of 33. You're going ahead of me, your servant, and I'll lead on slowly now. I'm going to lead on at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord. I'm going to walk with the kids. I'm not pushing them. He's a changed man. He's not the same man. He's a cripple in a sense. Taken out of the world. What's the matter with that guy? He doesn't... But he's a new man and he's living a new life. Walking a different walk. God hears the sound of His walk as much as the sound of His voice. This experience always leads to a permanent change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-18 becomes reality. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All that is from God. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Oh, behold, the new has come. Behold, Jacob. And there's so many more we could look at. Read history of. Anyone looking at Jacob lame for the rest of his life could see he's a different man. A different man. And so anyone who has had this vital experience knows he's a different being. His old man's been crucified with Christ. He's got the marks upon him. He doesn't walk in the same manner as he has a new life. Jacob, strong, self-reliant Jacob is gone. And the crippled Jacob, Israel, relying upon God, dies worshiping God on his staff. This experience has led to a permanent change. The man, my friends, who has met God in Christ is no longer what he used to be. All things have become new. The old has passed away. Have you been through this Peniel experience? Have you seen yourself in isolation? Have you seen yourself responsible before a holy God? Have you met God Is He real to you? Do you know Him? Is this knowledge of God in Christ the biggest thing, the central thing, the most important thing in your life? Can you honestly say, I am what I am by the grace of God? Are you aware of a new man in yourself? A new life, a new interest, something beyond yourself that you can't really understand even. It's hard to explain. 
And you say with Paul, well, yeah, I live. I've been crucified with Christ, but I live, but it's not me, it's Christ that lives in me. And the life, though, that I now live, now live, now live, that I didn't live before, that I live live before in the flesh, now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. In the isolation, has Christ come to you? Have you met Him? Have you pleaded for the blessing He can only give you? Or am I wearying you with this truth? If you haven't until now, may God grant that this day is your peniel. That even now, you might feel His presence and know He is here. And that from here, you might go on forward. A new heart. new way of walking. Forward as a post-peniel man. Knowing God in Christ Jesus. May it be your day. May it be. And let me encourage you. We don't give altar calls. But I'm open to talk with you. Kirk's open to talk with you. My home is open every day, every night, all day. There's Bible studies on Sunday nights. There's Bible studies that have been going on there for years. My doors are open. Come in and let me share. Let the people that might be there with me share this most vital of all that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. <clears throat> Kirk, I'll get you to come on up here if you would. Come on, I'm praying, please. We're going to sing a last song, I believe. Understand that you're singing to God. That you as an individual are appearing before God. Oh, Father in heaven, our great and mighty God, you who have created all things, with you we know that all things are possible. I pray for the fulfillment of your promise to us. Oh, God, I trust in you that the hopes of our hearts. Some people are praying for others. Some people are praying for themselves. May those hopes be fulfilled exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that we can imagine or ask. And they will be. We behold this love. Oh, what manner of love it is. Not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. And that you have given your Son to be propitiation for our sins. We thank you. We thank You that You've made a way into Your holy presence. That You, Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, are talking to us today. May You, O God, touch each and every heart within the sound of my voice. Mold it and shape it according to Your good pleasure. For the lifting up of Christ to the glory of Your name. For the edification of Your church. 
your glorious bride. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.